Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and my guest this week is someone that you will uh, know and have followed for many years, it's uh, it's award-winning journalist Ray Martin and I'm looking forward to catching up with Ray and to hear his stories about covering over the last 50 odd years some of the key moments in history, I think it's going to be a really great conversation and Ray, it's just a real pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thanks man, good to be here. Now... I think let's let's kick off before we get started. I wanted to say I wanted a, a bit of an announcement for people that we um, we're going on a tour together, aren't we? We're heading to the Western Front. Um, and we've done it once before. We we've done Turkey. it. We've, we we have done Gallipoli, and so this is a follow up from our our trip in 2015. We are going uh, next year in June to uh, to the Western Front. We'll be going together um, and exploring some of those key Australian battlefields. What what does that mean to you to be able to go and walk this ground and explore this vital? important chapter of history. Yeah, it's very, um, I was going to be a history teacher. Um, I did history honours at Sydney University and I was going to be a history teacher or lecturer and then jumped the fence and become a, a journalist. But part of my journalism is, in fact, you know, most books I read are about history. Um, I've become um, a bit of a nut on, uh, on early Australian colonial history now, the first sort of 40 or 50 years. Um, so when I went to America for the ABC 69 to 78, um, I had studied American history at university and I was uh, pretty familiar with the battlefields and pretty familiar with early Australian, uh, early American colonial history. So to, to walk the graveyards of New England, um, to walk the battlefields of the Civil War were extraordinary. I mean, the hair and back of my neck standing up a bit as I talk about it because it was things that I'd read in, you know, dusty library shelves in, at Sydney University and now I was suddenly there. This war is much the same. The, the First World War and, and Gallipoli when we went together. Um, I think I said to you at the time that um, that I, when I went to Gettysburg and went to some of the American great battlefields, um, extraordinary battlefields, um, I was moved to, to uh, begin to understand what was there, but not as much as when I first went to Gallipoli and went up Shrapnel uh, Gully and uh, and thought that my own people had been there, Australians as against Americans. Um, and I'd, and uh, and if you know, and, and when I travel with you, I know much more. But um, but to be filled in and be to be familiarised with what these men, in that case, was only men who went through uh, what they went through, and I think the same as the Western Front. Now, I've for me, it's what's really exciting about me going to the Western Front is that um, that I've been to Fromell 
and I've certainly been to Ypres, um, but uh, but I haven't been elsewhere and uh, parts of northern France and uh, and parts of Germany. But um, so I'm I'm the world's best tourist. I'm going to love to go to places the first time, and especially if it's something like something about our history. So to go to these places, I'm going to be like a, a kid in a toy shop, and uh, and hopefully um, can enjoy it with other people. Well, wonderfully as well, you're a a very well-respected photographer as well, and you're going to bring your uh, knowledge about photography to the tour as well, aren't you, with a special workshop, and we're going to be encouraging people to bring their cameras and take photos during the tour. That's an important part of not just a holiday experience, but also documenting these these visits to important sites of history, isn't it? The, the, The ability to take a photo... To, to share that with people, to help convey this story through photography. That's a really important part of travel, isn't it? Yeah, the iPhone has obviously put a camera in everybody's hands nowadays, um, but there are better cameras and there are you know better memories as a result of cameras. You don't have to buy an expensive camera, but there are cameras that are meant to take photos rather than um, using conversation. Um, but I think I find when I drive somewhere, whether it be Australia or overseas, if I'm driving, I take more notice of where I am. If I take photographs, I take more, more notice of where I've been in that sense. And I think photos are really important as, as memory triggers, if you like, but also it's, it's hard not to look at a photo and remember the few hours, if not the few minutes, but the few hours that were around that particular photograph. So I think photos are really important. Um, they're important in our lives and our family lives. And so often we tend to, these days, people tend to leave them on the computer, on the on the iPhone, rather than, you know, Ken Duncan, the great Australian photographer, says that you don't have a photo till you print it. That doesn't mean you've got to do a, a big poster-sized print, but at least the little postcards that our, you know, I used to have and our parents used to have and so on, those size are, are great memories in my mementos and, if you like, uh, reminders of these ex- extraordinary experiences. So given the places we're going to, um, in this this case in the Western Front, um, I just think to go without a camera is going uh, with one eye closed. Um, I just think it's so important to have a camera. So we had this idea of, of maybe having, if not every night, a competition and just see, let, let someone put up their favourite photograph, which may be a, a very lonely, empty shot at from Earl or maybe somewhere else in, in, you know, on that Western Front where that for the beauty of, of photography is that you don't have to be good and you don't have to be special. All you've got to do is just record a memory which for you is important and, and the chances are it will be very good, um, even if it's not, you know, um, as I say, from, a, from an aperture point of view or from a speed point of view, what a professional would do. But nevertheless, uh, you know, these wonderful memories that I've seen myself in uh, of ordinary people taking with ordinary cameras uh, and I know we're going to get that. So that's to inspire people to, you know, get out there and, and record what they're seeing and record something that, gee, that... It was that little corner of that gravestone. It was that uh, of that graveyard. It was that little part of the paddock where you know a great uncle disappeared, or where someone from from your town disappeared. That's worth recording. It's worth recording. And thinking, how am I going to photograph that? How am I going to remember that? Well, we should remember as well that photography was a hugely important aspect of the First World War. This was one of the first wars, probably the American Civil War was the first war where photography was actively used on the battlefield. But by the time of the First World War, the official war photographer had become a thing, and this was the first time we saw pictures from battlefields. And some of them are actually quite confronting. I'm always astounded when you go back, noting the amount of censorship and the, the way governments tried to depict the First World War for people at home. I'm always astounded at some of the access that photographers were given, uh, people like Frank Hurley. And, mm. uh, you know, the, the, some of the access they were given to those battlefields is, is just extraordinary. And, and the soldiers themselves. I mean, to think that you're out there trying to save, stay alive and the soldiers and nurses in the hospitals who took cameras back in 19. 19- 
14, 15, 16, 17, that through there when the cameras were fairly primitive but still very good if you knew what you're doing. Uh, and they took them along with, um, yeah, with uh, some other mementos from home. And they t- some of them took photographs and they were safe. Somehow, as you said, they got through and, uh, and we have you know, found some family photos from the battlefront now. But to have done it then when you had all the other rest of the clobber to carry with you it was remarkable. Well, they weren't allowed to bring cameras either. They were Amateur photographers were officially banned during the First World War, yet officers in particular would smuggle the box brownie along with them. And thank God they did because some of the most compelling shots we have now of the battlefields were taken, as you say, by soldiers who were right in the thick of the action. And even later, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember Winston Churchill um, and and um, uh, Menzies had photographs, had cameras with them when they went to World War Two sites. I think Churchill took some in, in, um, uh, in, in on North Africa, um, and that was his own camera. And it helps if you're the prime minister. But nevertheless, these were, as you say, the um, usually people who could afford a camera. Uh, if you're working class, you probably couldn't afford one. But beyond that, to have one there and secrete it from the officers was uh, was great. Fun. It's going to be a great trip. So that's to the Western Front. Ray Martin and I, I'm going to be there doing history stuff. Ray's going to be there sharing with us his wonderful uh, insights into the, the history and, and photography, etc. It's going to be great. If you want to come with us, visit the website, of course, like always. Uh, and there's uh, lots of spaces, but that's June 2020. That tour will be going. And it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, please come. Please come because, I mean, it's uh, war stories there of not just uh, WW1, but, uh, uh, you know, the stories that people have of their own families and their own, of what they've done themselves, um, plus a chance to just sort of get to meet people. And, uh, uh, you know, I've got obviously stories to tell of my 50-plus years, but I'm really there like everybody else to enjoy um, and, 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 and learn from what happened there. But I think, you know, together, at, uh, given what we did in, in Gallipoli and uh, how much fun we had then with um, 800 or so people, didn't we? On that, uh, on that occasion, much less than that this time, but a chance to sort of stop and smell the roses. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's only going to be, there's only going to be a couple of coaches this time, so it'll be uh, a much more intimate experience. It's going to be uh, quite a great tour, so go and check out the website for that one. You mentioned the importance of family and storytelling. You were telling me earlier today about growing up all, all throughout the bush in New South Wales. Just t- tell us a little bit, before we get to the story of Ray Martin, journalist, tell us about... Ray Martin, the kid growing up in uh, in Gunnedah and uh, and in the various back blocks of New South Wales. Yeah, my father was a, a mechanic and uh, had come out of the WW two. Uh, he was in the Air Force, and uh, I was born in Richmond because he was based at the Air Force in Richmond. And he then went bush after the war, and uh, he managed a couple of properties and was also working on <coughs> the building of, of uh, dams around New South Wales. And for some reason, they needed mechanics in that early stages. So we were very itinerant. I went to. Uh, I've got three older sisters and no brothers. Um, um, and we lived in, uh, we spent a lot of time in trains, uh, going from places to places, and uh, which is about the only transport one had then. And um, uh, and we lived in 13 different towns before I went to high school. And uh, I went to high school in Tassie, as it happened. But um, so we were, for me, it was looking back, it was boys' own adventure stuff. I was always, as I say, in a, somehow being looked after by my mother or my father or my sisters in a, a train somewhere and getting out of some <clears throat> lonely cold station in Albury or Wagga or um, these other uh, towns and uh, it would be two o'clock in the morning and I remember you know, vivid memories of, of um, railway station coffee, even as a, a small boy having coffee then, which I think was just chicory. The point was made about we didn't have coffee in those days, it was just chicory. And uh, I think um, there was the American writer um, who who came here in the 1800s and he uh, did a train trip from Melbourne to Sydney and uh, and he was saying that he thought Australian coffee was a, a mix between sheep dip and sump oil and uh, and you know we know American coffee is nowhere near as good as ours but at that time our coffee was just chicory so that's what I, but as a kid you'd get it uh, with a lot of uh, condensed milk and uh, the 
the railway canteens and I was a little boy with dimples and if I smiled at the women behind the counter um, I'd get extra condensed milk in there which meant which I used to love which is nice and, nice and sweet and I remember that vivid memory of, uh, of some lady sort of tweaking me on the cheek and uh, uh, he was in a starch white uniform and she'd give me coffee even though I was only six or seven or eight at that stage just to warm you up with a with an extra dab of uh, of condensed milk in there but so my memories of, of traveling around the bush were really good um you know we were absolutely working class a sort of catholic working class irish background uh, aboriginal uh, connection we later we were to learn later in our lives uh, my great great grandfather on my mum's side um had um, had two children with a, a full-blooded aboriginal woman in uh, northern new south wales and keep it what is now today keep it damned keep it station and uh, uh, those two children are obviously part of my blood uh, and i'm very proud of that uh, that was we didn't find out till later but that was part of the i suspect there are a lot of people who grew up in the bush who have an aboriginal connection uh, that hasn't been acknowledged or they don't know about uh, simply because of, of the mixing of the races out there so we grew up as i say all the time i, I traveled to these different schools my sisters who um, suffered much more as teenage girls because you know when you're that age you don't like to leave, leave, you don't like to leave friends and change school uniforms and all that sort of stuff it, to me it was just as i say it was my life was just boys own adventure i had the most wonderful mother who looked after me and uh, and my elder sisters and dad and so it was it was good growing up the bush was uh, was fun um, had i been older or my mother for example i think went through uh, a tyranny almost to uh, change uh, change houses change towns 13 times in, the, in uh, you know six or seven years but that was life how did that upbringing um, shape your worldview later in life. Do you do you still see yourself as a kid from the bush? Or? Yeah, I do. I do. And I still, oddly enough, I still see myself as a working class kid in the sense that I used to get my parents split. My father was uh, was violent towards my mother when he was drunk, uh, and so I used to do stuff when I was doing midday. I do you know a current affair, and we do something on <clears throat> on domestic violence. And uh, I'd get a letter from some lady in the bush or in the city, and uh, and she'd say, you know, good interview on that, but uh, you know, you that was also my experience. She'd say, and but you know, you could never understand what it was like. And I used to say, write a letter back and say, trust me, I do. Um, a, I've been poor, and I've been uh, working class, absolute working class. And at one stage, we when we came to the city, we had there was no accommodation in the early fifties in Australia, and um, and my th- two of my older sisters stayed with uh, my mother's brother. And sister-in-law in Paddington and uh, and then the three of us was my dad and my other sister and my mum and I were staying in uh, in whatever we could stay in and uh, we stayed variously from a houseboat to uh, uh, to the Salvation Army uh, residence and uh, and we for two nights we slept on a on the station on on a, a central station because it was uh, uh, my mum used to take my sisters and myself down to the housing mission office every day and we hadn't registered on the housing mission list so the someone down there said to mum look you've got to do something extreme so we sort of slept on the station for two nights. The second night, we were picked up by the police and uh, put in the paddy wagon and taken back to the housing admission place. And I remember the police saying to my father, you know, what are you doing here? We had our suitcases and we were asleep on the station. And um, and Dad said, we have no, we've got nowhere to stay. And, uh, and so we ended up, uh, jumping a train and going out to uh, a housing commission sort of uh, halfway centre out near Liverpool and uh, we subsequently got a housing commission house and, and life moved on but it was that uh, you know I think I'm, I remember researching my own story and there was something like 350,000 people in New South Wales after the war who didn't have houses and that's when the housing commission business really started and uh, and we were part of it and so uh, as I say it used to be funny when um, I get letters from people saying you know you wouldn't understand what it's like to be this and I said well, trust me I do. How did you 
go from that remarkable start in life to how did you decide that journalism was, was what you wanted to do and, and, and that was how you are going to make your career? Yeah, I don't know whether I ever decided. And, and having said that about my early life, I never felt like I was poor. I never felt deprived. I never went hungry. As I say, I had the most extraordinary mother known to, uh, to man. And, um, and so uh, I just see, I didn't know, there didn't seem to be the difference between the rich and the poor in Australia in those days. So I was just like everybody else. You know, I uh, always had shoes to wear and always had uh, uh, clothes to wear, uh, etc. So that was part of the upbringing. But, I was lucky enough to go to a selective high school and uh, and then I got a scholarship at the end of that to go to university um, and uh, uh, and that was I could, uh, there's no way in the world I could have afforded university without a scholarship with my background um, and it was an engineering scholarship and uh, and I did a combat scholarship to do engineering and uh, and I did about three weeks of engineering at Sydney University and thought this is the wrong side of the brain this is you know engineer ain't ain't me and uh, and so I jumped the fence and I you couldn't transfer Commonwealth scholarships in those days. So once you you'd chosen a, a, a scholarship, you had to stick with it. But I got an education department scholarship instead, and so decided I'd go and teach. Um, and I was in my honours year of history, as I said, um, and I decided I didn't want to teach. Um, and so I applied for a job at the ABC as a cadet. And uh, and they used to give two um, uh, two scholarships a year or two traineeships a year. And uh, and I got that particular year, and uh, and that was the start of it. But I had no idea. I had no idea what journalism was. When, when was this? What uh, what era was this, right? Sixty five. Um, I started with the ABC. I had been myself and a mate at, at uh, Launceston High School, which was a selective school. Um, we um, we ran the school newspaper and the school radio station mainly because it got us out of assembly. Uh, we'd run the the microphones and we'd play the records and so on for assembly. We didn't have to sit sit in the uh, the drafty old hall. But also from a, the, the newspaper point of view, I was the news and sports editor, and my friend did uh, my mate did the other things in the newspaper, and so I could really just you know, boast about my sporting prowess and things that I'd done on the on the sporting field way beyond what I'd really done. But that's what you can do when you're a, when you're a journalist or the, the correspondent. So that was the only connection we had with journalism, so to speak, and that was done for ulterior motives. But um, uh, but ABC in those days was, you know, we're talking about um, 1965. I started as a cadet in Sydney and went to Perth and Canberra and then was got the, the job as New York correspondent in 1969 to 78. Now, that was the really, that was the change of my life because America in 69 was the start of the civil rights revolution, the, the, the feminist revolution, the gay revolution, um, and the 60, the late 60s were, you know, revolutionary time in America and in the world, and America led the way if you like, in the revolution. So I arrived there when uh, when things were happening in America uh, and Vietnam was happening and Nixon was happening and Man on the Moon was happening and et cetera, et cetera. And it seemed like every day there was some new news story that you could get your teeth into. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the foundations of my life were really just those 10 years in America. Joining um, the ABC in the mid '60s, I, I, there probably has not been a more tumultuous decade in no. in, in recent history. I mean, the, the changes that occurred in the '60s and into the '70s, and especially as you say, through America, throughout the world, that must have been an absolutely extraordinary time to be a new journalist covering it, these new stories. It was, and, and I'd worked 
walked out of uh, Canberra that I've been covering politics down there for about two years and, and we were very much under a British system but even tighter than that. We are a conservative people and, uh, and, our, and our journalistic laws were extremely conservative and the, the um, uh, defamation laws and the, and the restrictions on journalism were much tighter than they are today although there's an attempt today to try and toughen them up again uh, with, with present governments. But, um, um, but, but in those days I remember going to America and there was a uh, Robert Askin was the uh, Robert Askin was the um, uh, New South Wales Premier at the time, and and we knew as journalists that he was on the take um, uh, from money from the, from SP bookies in in and in, in SP gambling in New South Wales. And you could never report that, even though he was the Premier at the time, and it's since been reported and established as fact. Um, but you had to be careful about what you said about uh, people. And I got to America and. There was a guy named Pete Hamill who was uh, a wonderful Irish-American writer, probably the most powerful influence on my writing and my thoughts that I'd come across at that stage. And uh, he was living with Shirley MacLaine, um, at, at Pete Hamill was, and is still alive and wrote, uh, he wrote the, the first of the covers for Bob Dylan albums and things like this. He was just a most lively, vibrant, beautiful writer. And, uh, and he wrote a column for... Uh, the New York Post, which is a paper that, Mur- that Rupert Murdoch has subsequently bought. But at that time, it was a, a, a run by a, a, a li- smaller liberal Jewish woman um, in New York. And it had all that sort of um, the liberalism of, of, I mean, smaller liberalism of, of the American Jews. And, uh, and so it was in the paper, the Post. And he had a column three days a week. And I subsequently cut the columns out. It was so starkly different from anything I'd seen in Australia. And he wrote a column about um, a congressman when I'd just, as I said, I'd been there a week or two and it was called none was the top of the column each column had a name and he was congressman congressman less than none who was from tennessee and uh, he'd been in the middle he was a democrat but he was in the middle of all kinds of uh, skullduggery and and uh, uh, pork barreling as the americans called it at that time and, uh, and but he died and the opening paragraph in this after my experience of journalism in australia and canberra was pete hamill's opening line was they buried Lester Nunn in Tuscaloosa today, full stop, and we're better off without him. And then he, he began to, he just listed the calumnies. He listed all the, the not beyond pork barreling, all the things this guy had done in his life. I couldn't believe it. I mean, for someone coming out of the politics of Canberra where you couldn't, you really couldn't tell the truth, you had to be careful about it. Suddenly I was in this land of the free. I was in America where, uh, where they did tell Richard Nixon that he was a crook, um, and that, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just for a journalist, it was, you know, I don't, I don't want to go out there calling people crooks when they're not, but, but it was this freedom of the press that I had only heard about. And I think, uh, as you said, the, the revolution was being led in America. We, uh, a bit of it was in France, of course, with civil rights and other rights in France and certainly some of the youth movement in France and Germany, but America was very revolutionary, and it was. And you don't know at the time in this history we talk about that it's usually when you step back and look at a timeline you realise that when things happen. But, but as I said, the civil rights movement just blew apart um, in in America. It was you know the the Black Panthers were a violent revolutionary group in America, and I found myself one night in a in in Harlem um, one Friday night, and uh, uh, Jean Genet, the um, uh, Genet, the the, the French. French uh, communist was there talking to the Black Panthers, and uh, and it was two o'clock in the morning. I was in the deepest, darkest part of of, the, of uh, Harlem, and then the South Bronx, uh, which were very dangerous places in those days. And I was this innocent white kid from Australia, um, waiting to speak to Jean Genet um, at, at two o'clock in the morning with these revolutionary Black Panthers around, and, and I, I had no sense of uh, of the danger, uh, and it, it was really serious danger. I mean, probably the FBI and, and, and the uh, police forces fought with the Black Panthers. And 
and and many were killed. A lot of people were killed on both sides. But that was a sort of, uh, you know, it wasn't the sophistication of America that we see today. It was when America was was bubbling and and uh, and breaking apart. What was that like to be in New York at this time? I mean, we're talking the end of the Vietnam War. We're talking widespread protests. Watergate. I mean, these are all stories. I assume you were covering as, as, as part of your day to day life. That must have been it. Must have been exhilarating to be and, in New York at that time. And the women's revolution as well. I mean, suddenly uh, Betty Friedan and all these the, the revolutionaries, if you like, uh, in the women's movement, getting some equal rights for women. Um, the gay movement, the gay uh, equal rights movement, began in America again. I mean, it's already places like Holland and, and others had just accepted it, but rest of the world uh, still re- rejected um, and resented the, the gay revolution, if you like, and Americans decided to fight it. Um, it was, you were conscious that you were, um, you know, the, a, a phrase I think that Dylan used of being in the belly of the beast. You're conscious that the revolution was happening before you in this highly sophisticated centre of the, of the earth. I mean, it was um, someone like uh, Jimmy Breslin, the, the great New York writer, um, he said, you know, when you leave New York, you go bush. Um, and that was not just in America, but for the rest of the world. Um, uh, Ken Tyne, the, the um, English writer, said that, um, comparing, and he grew up in London, he was saying New York was like Technicolor, where London was black and white. Uh, and that was that. That was the difference in terms of New York leading the world. And there are times when Berlin leads the world, and Paris leads the world, and London. Well, you know, almost since the end of the war, New York has led the world. Uh, and you're conscious that this is where um, ideas happen, and you're conscious that this is where changes happen. And, and you know, then you had uh, J- John Kennedy telling uh, the world that uh, man was going to be put on the moon by the end of the sixties, and it did happen. But that that appeared for a young boy growing up in Australia and looking at the moon, and then for a young journalist going to America, I thought there's no way that going to do that but they did and that's the sort of thing they did ray did you feel as a journalist did you feel removed from this revolution that was going on all around you or did you feel caught up in it did you feel part of the story or were you removed simply reporting on what you saw yeah i'd love to say i I felt part of i didn't um all the time the thing i love about journalism is that um when i finished you know working full-time at channel line i can't tell you the number of letters that i used to get from people saying it's clear that you're a card-carrying communist and the others would say (laughs) it's clear that you're a Right, right-wing liberal, and, and I thought, well, I've done a good job. If people have no idea what my politics, because my politics are irrelevant to what I report, what I think, apart from sexism and racism, which are which are non-negotiable, um, then I think otherwise, I, what I think doesn't matter. I, I should just report. So it was only when I wrote my autobiography when I'd left Nine and uh, about two thousand and eight that I started to put that timeline in of the ten years, for example, in America, apart from other things in my life, and uh, and I thought, wow, that's when. The Kent State killings happened. The Kent State University, where three students were shot by, uh, you know, by by American troops uh, in there, and it was a it was a um, a conflagration. It was a, a riot that was caused by the number two and the CIA. Um, James Jesus Engelen, a man whom I spoke to later, who was sacked from the CIA for setting up these agent provocateurs in the universities. Now, it was his people who had who had set that riot up to make look, make look as though it was a, a left wing conspiracy. And the National Guard went to try and calm it down. And three students were shot and killed. Um, we now know it was done by the CIA. And that, I'm not, I, I don't believe 
in conspiracies generally. So I'm not I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but that's just a fact of life. So those things were happening, and, and but that was exposed in America. It, it, very few places would it be exposed. It would be somehow swept under the carpet, whether it be Saudi Arabia or France or Germany. In America, they exposed things like this. So you did get Watergate, and you did get the uh, the Pentagon Papers, and you get all these things that almost like like WikiLeaks today. You got Ameri- Americans expecting, and the Mueller inquiry. You expect Americans expect to be told the truth. Uh, not that they are all the time. Nobody is. But nevertheless, that's what I, I fell into as a journalist. So I was conscious conscious that I was, um, uh, you know, covering these stories day, day, day by day. And it's all exhilarating and exciting. And as I say, at one stage, I think the ABC um, made me, instructed me to take some holidays because um, uh, we'd, we'd built up over 26 weeks of holidays, my wife and I. And, uh, and it was just, you couldn't go away for a week because you'd miss something, something would be happening as a journalist. And, uh, and so we finally were, you know, forced to take a month of our holidays, and we ended up going around the American Civil War sites um, on holiday um, as a result. But it was just so exciting in that period through the seventies when it seemed like if it wasn't happening in America, then it just didn't happen. You mentioned the moon landings. What were the other big stories that you covered during that period? Because as we said, the late sixties into the nineteen seventies, there was just so much. There's something happening every day. Yeah, what, were the, what were the big stories that stand out in your mind? You covered in that time. I guess the st- well, certainly even the start of the environmental movement um, happened in America, um, and that and you suddenly became aware of <clears throat> that we were messing up this planet of ours, um, and the, and yet you, until today, you know, we don't really uh, ex- and, until Europe goes through these sort of heat waves they're having uh, and, and the hottest uh, period in the history of, of Europe, um, you realise there might be something happening, um, uh, uh, the Barrier Reef melting and those sorts of things. Um, we now realise that there is something Something happening, whether it's man-made or whatever, there is a climate change. That was started in America in the 1960s, late 60s, early into the 70s is when they started to ring the bells, um, about the alarm bells, uh, about the environment, about lead in, in water, about um, you know, all the things we were doing in the forests and et cetera, et cetera, in the oceans. Um, that was really, you, know, you, you couldn't avoid it. And yet you, for a moment, because it was so revolutionary and so new, um, did people really care? Well, no, they didn't care as much as they care today about that. The same as the as the as women's movement. I mean, you look at the sexism as there was in our lives in Australia or in America or uh, in the Western world. Um, again, it was very hard to beat that drum for too long because, yeah, all right, we've heard about women. We know that women, even though you know women are, even though there was a glass ceiling, even though women were being paid less than men, all those sorts of things. Uh, from a news point of view, um, you can only you can only do things that people are prepared to accept and people want to read and what to listen to so you couldn't beat that 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 feminist drum for too long before before people said yawned and said yeah i've heard all that um you know it was the same with aboriginal stories as a as a young journalist in australia for, through that period that i was growing up um the editor's adage was or you know black fellas don't sell newspapers or don't sell ratings and therefore unless it happened to be a negative story about indigenous people um then you know we don't want a story about Abos, um, you know that offensive word that was used at the time, and so there is, there are these changes, and and at that stage, civil rights and and, and, and if you like, black equality was was starting to uh, was beginning as a as a serious story, and I think that we tended to ape that with some of the riots and some of the um, uh, demonstrations that indigenous people had in Australia in the seventies as well, because that's what was happening in America, and, and and that's why America was important, and that's where I felt like I was in the belly of the beast, and with the women's movement and the environmental movement and the civil rights movement and the gay 
movement and etc on those things so um but but i was always an observer of that it was uh, i went to the moratorium the marches a million people walking uh, down the, uh, the 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 main uh, main boulevards in in washington and uh, you're aware of all these people who weren't all sort of uh, uh, long-haired dirty grubby uh, hippies they were middle-class americans who suddenly had began to got the began to get the message and that's part of that you know the the history uh, and, and, and the moments of history that I now look back on, and, and including the, the man walking the moon um, at that time, which I covered almost second by second. Um, and that at the time you think, wow, this is pretty important, but you don't think in 50 years' time as we have now, we're going to sit back and, and look at that. Um, you know, and, and, and people like the Ali's and uh, whom I interviewed, Muhammad Ali and, uh, and at the time, and I went to the, the, the first fight that Ali had with uh, Joe Frazier at Madison Square Garden. I'd been, as again, as a working-class boy, I'd been to Sydney Stadium and seen fights with my father, who was uh, keen on fights and, uh, and, and the fighting game. And, um, and I had grown up with that, seeing it in Sydney Stadium, which was, you know, a barn, uh, and then I get to Madison Square Garden and there are 20,000 people there for the biggest sporting event in the history of the world at that stage and he was a black man who was fighting a even blacker man but uh, Frazier being the blacker man was almost the great white hope because uh, Ali had become so controversial and so here was white America trying to support this very black man named Joe, Joe Frazier against this upstart who changed his name and become a Muslim in Ali and, uh, and I remember you know I sat about 20 rows from ringside in that particular fight and I'm an absolute sports nut I love sport uh, that was the not only the biggest sporting event in the history of the world in, in terms of finances um, at that stage, the financial um, payout to the two men, but I just felt like I'd gone to heaven and, uh, and there I was sitting. Uh, there was so few seats in that particular fight that uh, um, Frank Sinatra had to, only way he could get into the fight was as a photographer for Life magazine. He had a, <laughs> a tag around his neck with his black suit and a black tie on, sitting in, in 20 rows in front of me, um, and it, it said photographer, and of course he wasn't taking photographs he just wanted to go to the fight and there were no seats and the fight went for uh, 15 rounds it was a draw it, it was a, a win for Frazier rather and both men ended up with broken jaws and and I'm a non-violent person but I, but uh, but it was one of those extraordinary spectacles if you like street theater or or um, theater in a, in a stadium that I'd ever seen in my life and it was uh, and I was there and those sorts of things so you know that's, I think that's the the privilege of being a journalist but also the privilege of being in America at that time you covered obviously historic events, a lot of political events, but what about the great cultural things that were going on at the same time? Because you mentioned to me earlier on that you you interviewed the Beatles, that you know that there was just such a revolution in uh, popular culture, art, music, everything was going on in America at the time. How how did that feel to be so closely involved in the the cultural aspects of that revolution as well? It, it- it was. I mean, once again, New York was the centre of the of, of the universe, and America was a wider centre, if you like. But things could happen in like like the Rolling Stones and Altamont, the the big um, riot that ended up with a couple of people stabbed uh, at that Rolling Stones concert in, in California was on the other side of the country, and what it made the New York Times papers and so on. If it didn't happen in New York, it sort of didn't happen. And, and some of the you know people like Rod Stewart and the others coming out of America, out out of England rather, uh, excepting for the Beatles. Ex- um, you didn't really know. I mean, I got into Rod Stewart and Joe Cocker sometime later um, because they weren't big in New York and they weren't big in that side of America. They were, they were you know, anything that happens off the American coastline doesn't happen for Americans, and that was it. But the, the, the John Lennon story is funny. I interviewed... Um, 
George Harrison a couple of times in midday, and he was wonderful. He was wonderfully uh, eloquent in that sort of dry uh, Liverpool, Liverpoolian way that he had, and and a lovely sense of humour. And I and I interviewed um, um, Ringo Starr, um, uh, not Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, interesting. I did a, a series of thirty shows more recent times with Sir David Attenborough, and the Australian entrepreneur who was uh, who brought out David Attenborough, and I used to ride shotgun with David on live uh, shows that we did, and um, and I. Uh, Five thousand people in the audience uh, would sell out almost overnight with David Attenborough, and uh, and so on the strength of that first one, the entrepreneur said, "Let's try and get Sir Paul McCartney, um, and we'll bring him to Australia." And the idea would be it was just a uh, maybe a, a, a guitar number at the start, and we'd talk about the Beatles days in Liverpool and so on, and then uh, it would take an interval, and then we'd have a, a piano number at the second half, and the rest would just be a conversation with Sir Paul, and so um, with Paul McCartney, and so they got in touch with more Paul McCartney's management team who were in South America, in Rio at the time, playing for a football stadium. We're talking about probably 2010, 2011. And, uh, and so they got in touch and said, we've done this thing with, with Sir David Attenborough and we'd like to do something with Sir Paul. And they came back and said, look, on the strength of that, we, Sir Paul, we've spoken to him. He's very keen to do it. Um, he understands what Sir David's done. Um, our fee would be £120 million. £120 million. And we're only talking about a show in Melbourne and Sydney and, and probably New York and Washington and, and uh, uh, Ottawa and, uh, and, and London. And uh, that was all. But £120 million, that was the starting base. Anyway, never happened. So that was the closest I got to Paul McCartney. But when I first, when we, Diane and I, my wife and I, first went to New York, um, we were, uh, it was like 1972. 273. One afternoon we were in, coming out of Central Park. It was summertime and you know, like six or seven o'clock at night and the sun was still out. And John Lennon and Yoko lived across the other side of the park uh, where he was subsequently shot and, and killed outside. And um, so they were heading across and the, if you like, on the, the Fifth Avenue side of Central Park for those who know America, uh, New York. Um, and he, he bounced into the park as we were leaving with um, Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton was in a band with at the time and John Lennon was had a number one hit and he had a band with Yoko and Eric Clapton and a few other wonderful American musicians and um and he was and Richard Nixon was the president and Richard Nixon was trying to kick him out of America he was anti-Vietnam John was anti-Vietnam and getting a lot of attention and was outspoken as he always was about civil rights as well and uh, etc so Nixon tried to get him out and uh John Lennon and friends fought through the American court system and he was allowed to stay. But he was a very prominent figure. And he bounced into the park with a, a pork pie, leather pork pie cap on, I remember, and these aviator glasses. And she had the same gear on. He had this wonderfully, uh, what looked expensive, uh, flying jacket, um, a black leather jacket. And she had the same. And Eric Clapton was in a check shirt, I remember. And they sort of just came almost across our path. And I did something I've never done before in my life or since. Um, I'm not a, 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 a stalker of stars. And I said, G'day, John. And he stopped in the middle of nowhere. I said it quite loudly. And he stopped and obviously heard a Cockney accent or something different. He had no idea who I was, of course. And, uh, and he stopped and for a moment smiled, this incredible, um, you know, uh, sparkling smile and a twinkle of the eyes and said, G'day. And then he went. And uh, three of them went off as they were talking. It was just, stop, g'day, John, g'day. And my wife said, what did you do that for? And I said, it was John Lennon. And she said, you idiot, why would you do that? And she walked away. She was offended by me <laughs> saying, g'day, John. And I said, it was John Lennon. I was trying to explain to myself, as I say, something I, ne- I never do is my, was my brusque with fame. Um, and, and, but he went, again, never to be interviewed by me and never to be seen by me. 
But if you're a journalist for long enough, the cycle of life is such that um, 10 years later, I was on 60 Minutes and I went back to when he was shot and killed um, outside his apartment that he was heading for that day. Um, and I covered that, uh, his, his uh, murder. Um, and 20 years after that, I was there with our daughter, Jenna, when she left school. And she and I, once she finished high school, we had this deal. We were going to do a week of it's just she and I in New York looking at theatre because she loves theatre. And that was December again. I didn't know it was the anniversary. It was 20 years to the day after he was shot um, that I was with Jenna in uh, Central Park on an afternoon and around that area, which is Strawberry Fields, just below where John Lennon lived. And, um, and that's now sort of dedicated to the Beatles. And there were probably 2,000 people there with guitars singing, not just John Lennon songs but Beatles songs and others were sitting around like us and just you know basically taking in if you like basking in the uh, the history of um, and memory of, of what was Lennon and what was the Beatles and I thought that incredible cycle of life that you have that if you live long enough you there one day when you say g'day John and you, you're there 10 years later when he's assassinated and you're there 20 years later after that with your daughter in another generation saying well you know there's amazing thing happened and she was and she of course had grown up as people do uh, even young people today on the Beatles and it was that extraordinary you know privilege again that you get big moments like that when John Lennon was killed I mean everyone remembers where they were when these 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 huge moments in history occurred how how does that work as a as a journalist you have said to me you were a massive John Lennon fan mm-hmm, you get absolutely. this terrible terrible news that he's been murdered in New York but you've got a job to do to go and cover that are you able as a journalist to create that gap required to remain professional and to, and to stay removed from the story when thousands of people all around you are losing their minds and breaking down and, and, and suffering through this terrible event? Is, is it possible as a journalist to remove yourself from that and just get on with the job and, and try and separate yourself from the emotions of these big events? Um, I, I think you have to, but you can't always do it. I think what you do is you bring to something like that or something that moves you emotionally, hopefully you write better and you tell the story better. Um, you know, to know what Ali, had, uh, what he'd been and what he became when he became just a sort of shattered... Um, on that same trip with Jenna, we were walking down 57th Street um, and we were stopped by a black car and a red um, carpet that went into the uh, Russian tea room on 57th Street, which is a, a fantastic restaurant. And, and we stopped to see what was happening and there was a nurse with this shuffling uh, um, North, uh, um, African-American man who was Ali. And it was Ali in the last year or so of his life. And once again, I was there with my daughter and I was able to say when he was the, the prettiest as he called himself but the most handsome best known man in the world um, Muhammad Ali and here he was now this sort of shuffling uh, wreck uh, of, of, a, of a man from what he'd been and that once again that's the, the cycle of life that happens to in some ways to all of us um, I could tell a better story about seeing Ali there because I'd seen him in that fight and because I thought he was you know, close to the greatest athlete I ever saw in my life. Um, similarly with um, uh, John Lennon, writing about John Lennon or writing about um, uh, the, the, the um, tsunami in, in Aceh where 200,000 people were killed and there were bodies around there is something that moves anybody emotionally. I think that you probably write better um, and, you, and, and probably your choice of adjectives and your choice of the way you described is probably stronger and more powerful than if you don't care. Um, but I don't think at the end of the day, uh, gen- if you're writing a news story, you should write, just tell the news story. But if you're writing a colour story, if you're doing something for 60 minutes or for four corners, I think as against a news bulletin, then I think you've got a chance to put your own feelings and your own emotions in there. And I think you're expected to, and you probably do a better job. There's a criticism that's levelled against 
journalism in general today that it's overwhelmingly negative. That it's it it, it that the you know if it bleeds it leads. There's a focus on these these stories and and I think there's a feeling that there's a. Uh, you know the, the the world is in some ways a sad place, and the press is responsible for that to some extent. Do you agree with that? And and, and has have you seen journalism change in the way those stories are told? Was it always the case that the the saddest and most tragic stories were the ones that that made the front pages? I think it was. Um, I think it was, except that now we've got twenty four hour news, and so you can't get away from it. Um, I go away nowadays um, overseas um, for a time and I don't read the Australian papers for a couple of weeks and I come back and apart from, let's say, <clears throat> you know, Bob Hawke's death or something uh, really prominent like that, nothing's changed. And so you can survive without the news. Um, you can't survive without information. You need information, but you can survive without the daily news. And I used to, when I was fronting a current affair, when I was also working on 60 Minutes and the Midday Show, um, the, common ref- the most common refrain is is why is it always bad news? Why do we always focus on ugly people or people who are negative or people who do bad things? Um, why, you know, I live next, I, I live in a, a neighbourhood in which people don't do bad things. They, um, the kids go to school and they cuddle the kids and the kids play football or netball um, and life goes on and people care about the local dogs. And, and that's true. I mean, most of, thankfully for our society in Australia, most people do care and they look after each other. And I think that that's, um, that's an understandable refrain from everybody that, um, you know, why can't we cover stories of good people? Why do we always cover stories of, of rat bags or of, of you know bad people? Um, and I and I think I, when I was, I was doing all those programs, I used to believe that we'd um, that we should go and do some stories on people who do good good works. And you know the Australian awards uh, that are given out uh, a couple of times a year usually so often forget the prominent people who get them um, and probably shouldn't. Um, it's the it's the scoutmaster from Wagga or it's the lady who looks after the uh, you know Meals on Wheels in some or else, or it's the it's someone who looks after the you know just a local the gardens in the, in a particular town in, out of the, off their own bat and so on. We do give awards for people who do these fantastic things, and you and I have talked about them, and we all talk about them over dinner. Of uh, you know, of uh, uh, there's something in the news about someone unknown who's remarkable, who's done remarkable things. So there should be more of that, and that's not being Pollyanna-ish. Um, news has to be about uh, things that get your attention, and so often they're about things that are almost like warnings, if you like, or things that are um, uh, exceptional and, and out of the ordinary, and crime is out of the ordinary in Australia, and violence is out of the ordinary. So it gets covered. But I do think we, we forget you know, some of the extraordinary people who aren't famous um, and even some of the famous the Dick Smiths of this world you know who give uh, every year give a couple of million dollars to charity every year he and, and, and Mrs Smith um, Pip give give uh, money every year now that's it should be pat, it should be lauded we should pat people on the back who do that they don't have to do it and lots of rich people don't uh, but they but people like Dick do and uh, so I think that as a journalist I find myself all the time looking for that the the extraordinary which doesn't have to be a star it's often the extraordinary is done by people who are very ordinary. Of all these wonderful people that you've had the privilege of interviewing, from presidents to prime ministers to rock stars, was there ever the one that got away? Who was the person that you most wanted to speak to and hoped that you would be able to sit down with that you never got the chance to? Oh, the one I'd, uh, I don't know whether I'd, I'd ever thought I had a chance, but the Queen would be uh, the one missing link, the one that, um, that I'd love to talk to. The, 
the Pope at the time as well because of, uh, you know, because of the power the influence that they have and because they're usually remarkable people. The Queen especially. I'm a Republican. Um, uh, and, and so I think, you know, I think the sooner we get rid of the Queen of Australia um, and remain, and she remains the Queen of England or the King of England will suit me. Um, I want the English uh, flag out of, off our flag. But nevertheless, I think the Queen is a remarkable woman and a remarkable person. And, and given what she's seen and what she's done over those years, um, I'd love to talk to her. She's been, you know, the, the change of government recently with Boris Johnson. I mean, she, I'd love to hear what she thinks of Boris Johnson. Um, but you, you'd hope that you could actually talk about, talk to her about, um, you know, with, without any filters and without any censorship. Um, and if she gave the inside story of the things she's seen in her period of reign, um, it would be, you know, uh, comparable, if not more than what Queen Victoria had uh, there. So the Queen is the, is, I'd love to, and I'd love to ask the Queen what she has in her handbag. Um, what does she carry in that handbag? She doesn't have the car keys, and she obviously doesn't have a. There's no credit card, and there's no purse. She might have some uh, some rouge, or but she's got a lady in waiting to, uh, to you know, touch up the lipstick. And the, have I got? I, I think it's. I suspect that her handbag is like something from Fortin and Mason's that's just got uh, rolled up paper in there, and uh, and it's it's really just there to keep the size of the, the shape of the bag. There's doing nothing in there because there's someone alongside her who will give her what she needs every time. And I, so I'd love to you know love to know what the what the Queen has in her handbag. Ray, that's something I've always admired about your interview style is you're able to find those angles, that common element that makes, uh, that, that finds a new way to tell the story, like asking the Queen what she's got in her handbag. How, how, do, you, how do you do that? If, you, if you're interviewing a, a famous person that's been asked the same question a, a million times, how do you find that angle that's going to hopefully bring them out and, 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 and reveal them more as a human being rather than just a celebrity? You do your homework. Um, I'm an ex- absolute stickler for getting information. If I interviewed you, um, I would want to know more about you than you know yourself. And, and when you tell me things that should surprise me, I'll, I'll act surprised. But I really want to know in advance how many children you have and, and, and what your wife's name is and that sort of stuff. That's, you know, I'm amazed sometimes journalists will talk to me and they, <clears throat> my wife's name is spelled D-I-A-N-N-E. And they won't even know that. There's a journalist who research has, you know, spells her name differently to what it is uh, and has no idea. So those sorts of things I just think are not journalism. Um, you need to know. So um, then to find something that you know that Rod Stewart or John Lennon's been asked the same questions a thousand times um, and uh, how to do get something that's different. I mean, I thought when I did the great debates with um, John Howard and with Paul Keating for Channel 9, the first of those, it just seemed to me, given the money that was being thrown around by both sides of politics at that stage, it, it seemed to me worthwhile to ask them how much a loaf of bread was um, because they deal in terms of, you know, $120 million was spent on the same-sex vote, um, postal vote. We knew what the results were, and yet it was thrown away like spare change uh, on that on that particular vote. And I think generally that even pe- working-class people like Paul Keating, or John Howard for that matter, um, they forget what it's like in the real world. And and they don't go and buy a loaf of bread or they don't buy a, a litre of milk. Now, that's not a silly question. It's a question of, you know, how much in touch with the real world are you? Because someone buys the loaf of bread for them or buys the uh, the, the, the milk. So I think that sort of question is, is valid. Often it gets a, a lovely response. I did an introduction for... Um, for Julian Lennon, he was on midday, and uh, John Lennon's son, and uh, 
and he came on and he had um, sweet water or salt water a song at the time which salt was, water yeah salt water yeah um, a song which was an international hit and I wrote the introduction he was I was doing midday and I wrote the introduction and I never mentioned John Lennon I just said this young guy from California and he's written a song that's taken the world and it's an environmental song and, and he's you know he's got an album out that so and so and so and so and I it was fairly a fulsome introduction and I never mentioned John and he came out. Just cacking himself, just laughing so much. So, my God, he said, that's the first time in my life someone didn't mention that I was John Lennon's son. And he said, and the end result, he gave a great interview. And it was just that attempt. I thought, hang, what else we do that's different? And without trying to be different in a, in a silly way, but I just thought, how will he respond if I don't mention John Lennon? Um, because he's, you know, he's a man in his own right, uh, and and that was the response. So so often, I think it's it's that question, like the loaf of bread question, or the others, that will will get a, you know, a different response. Jack um, Jack Lemon, I interviewed him once, and he was he'd been in uh, American movie, and he was he had fifty eight interviews about that movie at the time, and we were pre recording the interview, and we were the last one, and they gave us half an hour with him, and most of the others were eight minutes and nine minutes just for local news programs around the world. And I got to the end of it and uh, about to do the interview with him and uh, and Jack Lemon said, uh, Ray, I'd never met him, he was in Hollywood and I was here. And uh, he said, um, this is the 58th interview I've done today and yesterday. He said, would you mind if I had a cup of tea? And I said, oh, of course, Jack, and please be my guest. I knew we'd get half an hour anyway. Oh. So he had the cup of tea and he calmed down a bit and he was just chatting about nothing and then we started the interview and the clock began with our half hour. And I asked him something... Uh, which was, you know, not like um, the price of eggs or the price of, of uh, uh, a loaf of bread. But I asked him something about the movie, about acting. And I know he must, in 58 interviews, he must have been asked that question at least 20 times, if not more. He said, Ray, that's a, that's a damn good question. I don't know that. Well, let me think about that. Now, it was just because he was such great talent. And the end result, it makes, you know, it puffs up your image of that's a good question if you say to the person doing the interviews. Um, now, I thought at the time, how good are you? How good are you? Because that was the right sort of answer. And he ended up giving me an answer. And as I say, it wasn't a, a left or right field question. It was something that I'm sure he'd been asked as well. Oh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm, let me think how I answer that in the way you went. But now that, so that's the cleverness of someone who knows the media. Who, who was the biggest disappointment that you spoke to? Who, who didn't live up to their stature? when you actually sat down and spoke to them one-on-one? Uh, Michael Johnson, the, uh, the American uh, 400 metres champion, probably the greatest 400-metre runner in the world or distance runner in the world, American, African-American, um, won uh, the same night that Kathy Freeman won the gold for 400 metres, he won it for the 400 in the men and then won the 4 by 400 relay. Um, I was asked to do, a, we were asked 60 minutes to do a story a day in the life of Michael and um, he was a six-foot-five uh, uh, fellow from Texas and... Um, it was his last Olympic Games in Sydney and um, he was about to become the Goodwill Ambassador for Brisbane and they were paying, I think the state government with Peter Beattie at that stage was paying $100,000 as a Goodwill Ambassador. He was going to come back, not run, but come back and promote the Games in Brisbane. And um, and so they said, you know, could you do a day in the life of? And, I, and I'd read that he was difficult and uh, and so I remember saying to Peter Beattie's people, uh, does he want to do it? You know, is he really are we going to have a trouble? No, no, he wants to do it, he wants to do it. He didn't. He didn't want to do it. And, uh, and I won't go through. He did He did early morning FM radio with Agro up there on in Brisbane. And we filmed that at about 5.30 in the morning. And they 
they wrote in the diary, um, you know, impossible, never to be interviewed again. He was so difficult. It was just monosyllabic. And he had his sunglasses on in the studio. Um, and it was pitch black and he had his sunglasses when he walked out of the, the big limo that we took around. And, and we were in south, um, I won't go through the rest of it, but we were in uh, uh, across the river in Brisbane, um, just wanting to get a shot of him sort of wandering around where the people were. And a woman came across with a baby. Um, she was swimming there at the, a bit of a sort of a, a beach they have on the, the south bank. And um, and she said, oh, Michael, Michael, can I get a photograph of the baby? And he said, no photographs. And the woman looked at me and I was embarrassed. I sort of raised my hand and said, I, I don't know why. And anyway, no photographs. And a couple of uh, a couple of uh, young blokes came out of a, off a building nearby with their iPhones and said, oh, Michael, we get, can we get, uh, uh, get an autograph? Got an autograph? And he said, no autographs, no autographs. And the same thing. And they said, oh, why? No autographs. So I, um, I knew it was going to be a difficult day. And I said to him as we stood by the river, um, look, you know, I'm going to make this as painless as I possibly can for you. Um, we're just doing a day in the life of. And so I said, you know, we just really just like to hear what you've got to say about the Sydney Olympics, uh, what you think of Cathy Freeman and what you think of yourself in terms of what you've done. So generally that's the area we're going to go. And he said, I won't use the language, but he said, I don't give a what's the name about Sydney. Um, I couldn't give a what's the name about Cathy Freeman. And I'm sick of what's the name talking about myself. And, that's, and I said, well, it's going to be a good interview for sure. Now, it wasn't. It got worse. And I asked about drugs. Where we, I'd be told not to. But drugs was the big issue of the Americans at the Sydney Olympics when five got sent home. And we had to ask about drugs, which I left at the end. And he stood up in the interview and uh, we had three cameras on it. And I thought he was going to hit me. He was so angry saying, that I told him I'm not going to talk about drugs and I'm not involved in drugs. And, uh, and I'm not suggesting that he was. But, um, but the American team had been. And I thought at the time, I thought, please hit me. Um, because we had three cameras. <laughs> but I thought, don't hit me hard. Because you hit me hard, you're going to knock me the next week. And uh, and he didn't. He went out saying, well, you know, when I come back for the Goodwill Games, there's someone I'm not going to be talking to, and that's you. And I said, well, you know, effectively tell someone who cares at that stage. It had been so difficult all the way through it. Um, and uh, and we, so we ran the story, including a, a bit of that. But I reckon I got probably 100 letters and uh, 80 said, why were you so rude to Michael Johnson? So <laughs> how do you explain? So he was, he was, I expected him because I'm a sports nut, as I said, and I expected him to be fantastic as Americans are. And, uh, and he could have easily dealt with the drug question and said, I'm not involved. Um, and moved on. The tag to that story, Matt, is that, um, uh, he retired then. The other, the rest of the relay team, the other three members kept running. And about, um, six months later, they were all three found positive on the juice and they had to give back their Sydney medals and he gave his medal back because he said if the other three are on drugs then obviously uh, they cheated and he couldn't afford to have it but so that was the tag to the story I'm not for a moment suggesting he was on drugs but nevertheless it was um the others were and uh, and they paid for it. Ray you've covered just so many amazing chapters of history why do you think it's important that we remember these things about history because there is a feeling today that people say why do you want to live in the past history is not important what does it matter from your perspective of having covered these vitally important world-changing events why is it important we remember history why is it remember that why is it important that we we learn from what's happened before well i i confess that i'm a history nut so that i think it's important as i'm sure scientists think you know science is more important um, than i do even though i love science but um uh, why is history important um you drive through an australian country town and you see a grand hotel or a grand building that has the date on the top 1914 
and you think, well, 1915, and you think, wow, this is when we first started to send men to the Western Front, um, 1916, and, um, and, and what a glorious moment it would have been in this country town's uh, life for this big emporium with this big hotel to open up. But at the very time we were sending men off to die, and or men were going off to die, and the same as you know, a hotel called Hotel Australia is usually built in the 1890s, and it's the time when Australia's decided to become a federation. And it's important. It's not. It's not just a hotel that's called the Hotel Australia. It was called that because the Australian Federation was important when we came together from these separate colonies to form one one nation. Um, and it's the same. You know, when you talk about 50 years since man stepped on the moon, when you think that if you don't know that the computer that was computers used to put man on the moon were almost what you could put in, in an iPhone these days. Almost um, in terms of the and these incredibly brave men uh, and those who sent them there who are also incredibly skilled and brave. Um, to take the risk um, were were like Captain Cook coming to uh, the east coast of Australia. They, they went to the dark side of the moon if, if for Captain Cook, but they literally went with the uh, the two men and, and, and Michael Collins who flew around the moon. Um, if you don't know that, you have no context for life. And I think that it's not just the old cliche about that you commit the same sins if you don't know what you've done in the past. As a society, you do need to know who we are and where we've come from. And I think that's in that sense, that's what history does. History tells you about the this sort of multicultural society we've got. Um, and it, you know, when I grew up, it was basically Irish, English, um, with a, a, a few Greeks and a few Italians and a few, and a few more Chinese. Now we're a multicultural um, example, I think, for the world. And, it, and really, I mean, we're just a shining light of what we do. Uh, if you don't know where these people came from and their history and, and what they contribute to Australia, if you don't know why we don't have um, cities in the in the centre of Australia, or if you don't know why you know you drive around Australian roads and, and about every hour in a car there's another town, well, that was the distance when bullocks uh, would be able to travel in a day, etc. And that's the reason, that, and obviously they're alongside rivers, and there's reason why all that. The historical thing of, of you know what Ballarat and Bendigo made Melbourne the second richest city in the British Commonwealth after London for a time there and we were and was immensely wealthy in Melbourne and we you know an opera house in in Ballarat and or Bendigo is it where the big opera house is and so on all these things were not there because they wanted an opera house it was there because we gold was was fueling Australia's economy as sheep had done beforehand And, and all these things so it's you know why would we go why did we stop in Albany before we headed off to Egypt and then went off to the Western Front and went off to fight uh in the First World War, you know, because that was the, uh, the last last bit of Australia they ever saw, and why Albany is important today in, in who we are. Um, I just I can't imagine um, just uh, as I say, much as I love science, I can't imagine just being uh, you know a nation that or a people who uh, are concerned about facts and figures in, in in the scientific or the mathematical world. That it's that social world that we we can't explain. You know what divided Australia in World War One in that sectarianism, the the why the Catholics were against um, you know supporting the the Brits in World War One, and, and yet why young men who are Catholics joined up and went across and almost defying their church and that sort of stuff. And I tell my children, um, you know, when I grew up when, in a place like Gunnedah where Protestants would cross over the road rather than walk past the Catholic Church because they were Protestants. And that was the sectarianism in Australia. If you don't know that, you don't understand who we are and, and how much we've, we've come to where they can laugh at that sort of fact, where you could have a, a legal firm or an accountancy firm in Sydney or Melbourne that was totally Catholic or totally Protestant and never the twain should meet and those sorts of things. So I think, you know, it's that if you don't know... If if you don't know our history, then you don't know who we are, and then you don't know who you are. 
Well, Ray, it's been absolutely wonderful. What are you working on now? What's the next project we're going to see Ray Martin associated with? I'm doing a, 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 I've become obsessive photographer, so I've, I've got a, a, an exhibition, in fact, a, a, the, the Biennale um, a photo exhibition a couple of months in Ballarat and Bendigo that I've got with a friend. I'm doing an exhibition there. I'm doing another exhibition up at Ken Duncan's gallery. Um, beyond that, I'm, uh, I'm still trying to write a book on Fred Hollows. I've been writing for some time. I was chairman of the Fred Hollows Foundation, and I think my holy trinity of people, the 10,000 plus interviews that the most remarkable people I met happen to be men I'm sorry but uh, I've met some remarkable women as well but Fred Hollows Don Bradman David Attenborough would have been my holy trinity in terms of the most remarkable men that I've met in that period of time and I've been trying to I knew Fred and he was a friend and his family want me to do the book and I'm about a third of the way through the book but I keep doing other things and uh, as a result I put it on the back burner but I'd like to I'd, I'd seriously like to do that before I'm, I'm unable to do it um, I'm doing um a lot of travel um, and I'm doing some stuff for SBS and I'm doing some stuff for um, Channel 7 coming up. I'm sort of a, a gun for hire if you like them. I, I just, I'm in that enviable position of just doing things that I want to do. If I don't want to do it, I don't do it um, generally and uh, and that's, you can't do it when you're a young man and you're trying to pay the mortgage um, and you're trying to get your kids through school but I'm past that and so I can just do things that please me and uh, figuring that I've got a limited amount of time and I want to do things that I like and you know the trip to the Western Front is one of the those things that I'm really looking forward to, I want to do, and uh, and, I, and that's why it's going to be so enjoyable. I think to do it, um, but I just do, um, you know, I write um, whenever I write. I like if I get asked to to uh, write stuff for newspapers and magazines, which I do. Um, I love to do. So it's just it's doing things that please me. Well, Ray, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely wonderful. And as we said at the uh, at the start of the interview, um, I'm really looking forward to our tour coming up to, to to hitting the battlefields and to hearing your insights, your great insights into the history that went on there, and uh, and your uh, your uh, your knowledge and skill about photography as well. I think is going to be is going to greatly enhance that experience. So um, I think I, we'll learn together, though. I mean, you you already know, and I and I uh, I love sort of basking in your wisdom and uh, sitting there in that. But I, but I think beyond that, even though I do know. And I've read an awful lot about this. I'm still going there. I haven't been to those areas. So like the rest of the people going on this trip, it'll be a journey in which we discover together what it's about with the, the historians and you um, and whatever insight. You know, there'll be people on the trip for sure who have relatives who served there or even died there for obvious reasons and uh, they're going on the trip and, and it'd be great to hear their stories. It's great to hear what, you know, suddenly the perspective of someone who sees a, one of these uh, Western Front graveyards and uh, that, that run on as we know run on on for as far as the eye could see almost and you get some sense as I said earlier of even 200,000 people die in the in Arche in the uh, in the tsunami there that you know when you see that many body bags around an area you think my god I mean how devastatingly destructive was this uh, was that that tsunami well how devastating destructive was world war one and uh, and to see you know row after row of gravestones and they're just the ones that we recovered and so on so i'm looking forward to it um yes knowing a lot about it and having read a lot about it but i really want to go and see it for myself and feel it and smell it and and you know and hear the wisdom of the people with us and uh, if you like you know we all discover it together so that's what i'm looking forward to it's going to be a great journey of discovery as you say and so uh, anyone listening if you want to come along with us please do check out our website and, and join ray and i on that tour it's going to be quite extraordinary and ray it's just been wonderful to have you on the show thank you so much we'll have you on again sometime in the future but thank you so much for joining us pleasure man terrific Ever. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 